Not even as an American. Because if I was an American, the problem that confronts our people today wouldn't even exist. So I have to stand here today as what I was when I was born, a black man. Before there was any such thing as a Republican or a Democrat, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Mason or an Elk, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Jew or a Christian, we were black people. In fact, before there was any such place as America, we were black. And after America has long passed from the scene, there will still be black people. I'm gonna tell you like it really is. Every election year, these politicians are sent up here to pacify us. They're sent here and set up here by the white man. This is what they do. They send drugs in Harlem down here to pacify us. They send alcohol down here to pacify us. They send prostitution down here to pacify us. Why, you can't even get drugs in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get prostitution in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get gambling in Harlem without the white man's permission. Every time you break the seal on that liquor bottle, that's a government seal you're breaking. Oh, I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. Bamboozled. Let us stray. Run amok. This is what he does. These are the questions you and I have to ask. How did we get this mind? You're not an American. You're an African who happens to be an American. You have to understand the difference. We didn't come over on the, the Nita, the Pinta, and the, and, the, and the whatchamacallit. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Landed right on top of us. Fortune magazine released their annual list of the 100 wealthiest people today, and Bill Gates has been overtaken. By whom, you ask? A Harlem resident named simply Tron. Our Stephanie Gold is standing by with him now. So how did you become the world's wealthiest man, Tron? Hot hand in a dice game, baby girl. Six hours straight, talking about clackety, 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 clack. Now you're looking at the world's richest man, and I'm black. Kiss my black ass, America. Yeah. Oh, all right, well, I think what everyone wants to know now is what are you going to do with all this money? Uh, uh, I'm going to reinvest my money into the community. Oh, that's a very nice gesture. What were you Side! Welcome back. This is the Zero to 100 podcast. Once again, I am your host, William C. Walker Jr. So this is episode 16. It is Sunday, June 30th. We are back on track in regards to getting these out on time, on the time frame that I want. So in this episode, I'm actually joined by my friend and author, Saquon Gullet 
who is the author of a book, Sail City, um, who he's actually working on a sequel to it already. And also, well, you know, also works to do some other things with it as well. Um, so the conversation I actually had with him was almost an hour long. Uh, and then at the tail end of it, we actually kind of got into a, a different subject matter altogether. And so what I did was I actually broke up the conversation and I'm going to play the first part, which is uh, where we talk about reparations because two weeks ago there was a hearing in Washington, D.C. in regards to uh, reparations for black people within this country. And, um, you know, the hearing was actually just to see the possibility of it and what it could mean. And it, you know, sparked a lot of talk and discussion and um, especially there was controversy before it when the Senate Majority Leader Turkey Neck Mitch McConnell um, decided to say that oh well I don't see how you could pay reparations because the people who were involved in it are dead and people who benefit from it are dead and people who are impacted by it uh, aren't alive and I'm sitting there like yeah that's not really the case as uh, me and Saquon discussed in our conversation, um, this was a very, very deep subject. Um, I thought the opening, the speech from uh, Denzel Washington's portrayal of Malcolm X in the film Malcolm X, it was actually kind of a blending of two separate speeches that he did in the movie put together, but I thought it really set the stage and hit the point, and um, it ties into what the episode is about in general. Uh, later, we're gonna uh, not do really a political spotlight, but it's more just my thoughts in regards to the uh, two Democratic debates that took place this past week, uh, last week on um, Wednesday and Thursday. Um, and just some interesting information that I was able to find out about reparations in general as I was preparing for this episode. So um, I called this episode 40 Acres and a Mule, just like how uh, Spike Lee named his film company after that, because that was the price that every free black, freed slave was supposed to receive from the United States government, which was uh, 40 acres of land and a mule, which no one ever got so um this is a very deep episode but i also have some fun with it uh not fun you know i present things in a fun funny way or things that make me laugh in regards to it so i uh, hope you guys enjoy it and the first up is my conversation with saquon gullet this is the zero to 100 podcast episode 16 Welcome back. This is the Zero to One Hundred podcast, and uh, for this episode, I'm very happy to be joined by my good friend, uh, who's also an author. His book is called Sale City, and uh, this is my friend Saquon. What's up, man? Hey, man. What's going on? I'm good. I'm good. So, uh, I was was interested in getting you on. Actually, it's funny because initially I wanted to get you on to talk sports, but then my uh, cousin, you know, your girlfriend Ebony was uh, telling me that, oh, he's really into politics, too. So I was like, oh, I definitely got to get him on, especially when um, we had the reparations hearing last week. And uh, so I figured that was a really good topic to talk about, and I wanted to get somebody else on, and uh, somebody other than my siblings. So (laughs) I felt like it would be really good to have you on. Yeah, I I 
have been into politics my whole life. I have been bearing this cross since I was a child. Probably <laughs> far too young to care that much because I remember the, the first presidential election that I remember, I wasn't allowed to stay up until the results came in. And which one so was I that? I up the next morning and I asked my grandma, did we win? <laughs> <laughs> which election was that? That was uh, George, uh, George Bush and Dukakis. I was probably like, Oh, okay, okay. Wow, you know, it's funny that you can remember that far back. I, you know, I remember that one because I was in, um, oh, man, I was in second grade, and I distinctly remember us having, like, a mock uh, vote for it, like, in our class. Like, um, yeah. yeah, so it's like, I, I definitely remember it. But, yeah, I was not, like, that's the only thing I can truly recall about it. I mean, I remember the first time I ever voted, um, unfortunately, was when Al Gore was going up against George W. Bush. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was like, you want to talk about a kick to the nuts. Because <laughs> that was yeah, like. That was, a, that was a heartbreaker. Yeah, it was like, you know, it's the first time I'm ever voting. And, you know, I'm excited. And then I vote. <laughs> and then next thing I know, they talking about, like, he won the popular vote. But he's not gonna win. I was like, "What?" I was yeah. so confused. But, but yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, man. So, did you get a chance to to see or uh, see any of the hearing or um, like read about it? I did. I didn't see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did see it, and I. Uh, was really, really impressed with Tom Hasey Coates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think he laid out everything about as eloquently as possible. Yeah. Uh, pretty, really, really fair. So I, he was the highlight of the whole thing. For, for sure. Um, but I did, I did get a chance to check out a lot of it. Yeah, his opening statement was off the hook. Like, like um, yeah, it was, it was a great opening statement. I'm, and it's funny because... Um, you know, I, I wasn't even that familiar with Ta-Nehisi Coates, actually. Not until, like, he started writing, um, he was writing um, Black Panther. It was the first time I even, like, the, when, when he first started writing Black Panther was the first time I heard about him. And then I was, like, looking into his other work and stuff like that and seeing how intelligent and, you know, um, a lot of the stuff that he, he's a big-time activist and, and that's when I first got introduced to him. But yeah, his his speech was off the hook, and it was like it hit all the right marks, um, in my opinion. It was, you know, I, I guess one of the things that that really struck out to me um, was just how, especially coming on the heels, uh, or excuse me, coming on the yeah the heels of uh, Mitch McConnell's statement, where he was pretty much like dismissing even the talk of reparations, and acting like. Yeah. You know, well, we passed civil rights legislation, and you even got a black president. So I'm like, like what? Like, like that? that. I loathe Mitch McConnell. Yeah. <laughs> like, I I fall short. I fall one step short of saying I wish he would just go ahead and kick the bucket. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's infuriating. It's like his. I mean. I guess the thing is, like, it, it, the stuff that he says, ever, especially ever since 
um, you know, Barack Obama had to take off, uh, took office. It was just like, it was mind-boggling to me the statements that would come out of this dude's mouth. And now it's like even more so now with Trump in there. It's just, it's so infuriating. So, right. you know, why, why would you say or like, why do you feel like reparations is something important for African Americans in this country? Well, I just look at history, mm-hmm. and there has never been a complete destruction of a people without the rebuilding of a people. Mm-hmm. America dropped bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and promptly rebuilt Japan. They wrote Japan's constitution, and still to this day, support and pay for uh, Japan. Mm-hmm. So any time, any time throughout history, the Jews have gotten uh, overly compensated. I don't want to say overly compensated when you're talking about the loss of life, yeah. but compared to what blacks have gotten, it, it is you know far and beyond anything that we can even imagine. Um, so here you have, you know, Millions and millions and millions of people die in the mid-Atlantic slave trade, and a still, still crazy number. What was it? Seven million Jews or something like that. But mm-hmm. we're ten times that, and they have been, you know, compensated, given land, given money, you know, all these things. Um, so to, to to ask for, even even if we're not asking for a check. If we're asking for um, equal opportunity or mm-hmm. just a, um, a <laughs> student loan forgiveness, <laughs> if we're asking for uh, an economic rebuilding, um, I think that that would be, if not something that we can hang our hat on, to at least a start. But we haven't gotten anything. The only thing that we got was 100 years of uh, further trying to hold us back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, no, I was saying, yeah, exactly. I agree with you. Yeah, like we, we were, I just I just visited a uh, slave plantation. Well, not a slave plantation, it was a sugar plantation mm-hmm. where enslaved people lived. And uh, one of the things that we focused on is that not only were uh, these people slaves, but the plantation that we were on didn't shut down until 1975. Wow. So they had people working it who technically weren't slaves, but the way that the system was set up, they were still basically bound to this land. They couldn't leave uh, because of their debts that they had incurred while working the province. So, you know, we have a lot of misconceptions about being free for 150 years when there was a study done that said black people weren't free in America until 1973. Mm-hmm. I mean, something that you stated, and especially when I was researching this and I was looking into it, because uh, I was reading articles about it because I didn't get a chance to see the hearing itself, but, you know, I was reading articles about it, and then um, mm-hmm. I got to see uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates open his statement. And so I... You know, when you were talking about how the Jewish people have been compensated and, you know, how uh, people in Japan have been compensated, that's the thing that 
stuck out to me the most, especially when you talk about reparations, because what? when I was yeah when I was researching it, I mean it's it's as recently as within this year, Jewish people have received payments of reparations from countries like France and Germany and um, you know even the United States paid reparations to Israel in regards to right. World War II and the Holocaust. And I'm just sitting there like, it's amazing to me how other people get this compensation, but we supposed to be told, oh, you know, y'all got a black president, get over it. And it's like, it's, it's just, and that's insane to me. Um, and, it, you know, even what you said, it's like, it, it goes beyond, like, not even from a, a economic standpoint, like what you were just talking about, because one of um, in one of the articles I was reading in, in the New York Times, they had, uh, was talking to a um, eighty-eight year old uh, Reverend Doris Sherman, who was at the hearing last week, and she was saying one of the the things that sh- struck out to me that that um, that I thought was you know pretty well said. She was talking about how you know they're they're not even asking for the government to do anything. She was like. Um, she was like, she just wants them to do something for the children. Where her quote was, "We don't want that mule now." Talking about, you know, how we black people were supposed to get forty acres and a mule, and she was right. like, you know, we don't want that mule now. And she was like, we don't want that forty acres. We're asking for remembrance, remember the struggle, remember the injustice, and remember them now. And I guess that's the thing that is so even more infuriating for Mitch McConnell to sit there and try to go. Well, you know, we're not, we weren't alive, or, you know, people weren't alive in in that time frame, like during that time period. So, how can you say who's supposed to get compensated and who should pay it? And it's like, so it's like you won't even acknowledge the sin that America did with slavery. Right. And you're just totally dismissing it. Right. And, 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 I personally, as a black person in America, don't feel like they have. They should apologize for those people. But what you do, what they what they try to sweep under the rug and act like they don't understand, is that okay? You weren't alive 150 years ago, mm-hmm. but you do understand that those people put in place a system that still benefits you and hurts me to this day. Mm-hmm. So until we dismantle that, then yeah, I do have an issue, and I will continue to point these things out mm-hmm. because. It's, it is the uh, you know you've heard the saying the system is not broken it's working exactly the way it was supposed to mm-hmm. and in certain, so many ways that's true so we do understand that there's a, a, a system that um, places a certain people on a on a higher as a first class citizen um, and until that is tumbled then then yeah we're 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 owed something. Mm-hmm. I just want to play a little bit of um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' opening statement um, because especially when it was talking about how Mitch McConnell was trying to say, oh, you know, I wasn't alive during that time or people weren't alive during that time because there was a little clip that, that uh, where Ta-Nehisi Coates addressed it. I'm just going to play it right now and, let you, and you can let okay. me know what you think. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder, from enslavement, 
But the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs, coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored state terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama in a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by governments who want to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they have a word with the majority leader. Like when I heard that, like that part right there, that's what really like, you know, he just said it all. Yeah, really brought it home. Because it's like, you can sit there and say, oh, I wasn't alive. Like, you know, who, who's alive at that time? But but the impacts of it, like, like you said, we still feeling it today. Like we don't need an economic, like, you know, we don't need actual checks. But like you said, we need to tear down the systems that's put in place that literally are put in place to keep us at a certain point in life and to keep us down. Right. So you look at you look at the the timeline in America. Mm-hmm. The black the black experience. It was two hundred and fifty years of slavery. In America, now slavery was the first place to slave it was Santo Domingo, but that's another topic. But in America, we had 250 some odd years of bondage, right? Mm -hmm. So then you had five, roughly five million slaves that were free. As soon as they found out that they were free, they could go. But then in the South, they had something because it, when 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 they came through. Reconstruction came through, they left, the, the northerners packed up and left, and the southerners went back to their way, way of life, trying to enact all of these things to keep people slaves. So there was something called vagrancy laws. And who were the vagrants that had nowhere to go? The five million slaves that are now free. So then they locked you up for being a vagrant, quote-unquote, and then they created something called a convict leasing program. So they would lease these people back to the same plantations where they just came from. So this is all happening happening under the under the guise of the law, right? Mm-hmm. So then they sweep through and they, and they try to, the, the uh, northern army comes through and tries to right some of those wrongs, but they don't stay. So then that's when you have the creation of the KKK going into the Jim Crow era, uh, which we all know made us, again, second-class citizens with no rights, right? Mm -hmm. Then you had all of these black soldiers who went away 
and fought for America. When the war, about the time the war is over, that's when they're creating the suburbs in America. So when the suburbs come about, they're, they're actually creating cities. Like the people our age, we're just used to the suburbs being there. But at this time, they were actually building them out of an alarming rate. All of these baby boomers are, um, the, well, the people that created the baby boomers are all coming home. And um, they're creating cities outside of the major cities. So a lot of these guys used the GI Bill. But you know who wasn't able to use the GI Bill? The black soldiers. Mm-hmm. So the black soldiers got, that's when the, the term redlining came in. They basically pulled out the maps and drew red lines on the maps and said no no black people outside of here. They wouldn't give them loans even if they could afford it. They, they wouldn't allow you to move there. They would, they would keep you in a certain area. So then you had the inner cities, which became jungle because the white people moved out, took all of the resources, and poverty came about. Uh, so, which is why, for people our age, if you ever noticed when we were like kids and teenagers, it was a big deal. If you had a cousin who lived in the suburbs, you felt like they made it. Because that was around the time when black people had struggled and, and grabbed and clogged to finally get to the suburbs. It took us mm-hmm. years to get there because we, we were held out and we had to trickle in. You know, so yeah. we had all of these things, the GI Bill that we were not a part of, even though we fought just like everybody else. Um, and then as we start to trickle into the suburbs very slowly, pulling up, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, um, the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. So the war on drugs comes directly, uh, is targeted towards us. They put the drugs there and then gave us 10 times more time for these crimes than white people. And we're six times more likely to be convicted of the same crime, and you're, you're going to do more time even with the same uh, track record. And and then what that does is brings us into mass incarceration where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in the land of the free, the home of the brave, we are the most imprisoned population in the world. Yep. Uh, and the majority of those prisoners are. The descendants of the slaves. Mm-hmm. So, if we we've had a rough go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I guess the thing that is, you know, I, I'm trying like. It, it boggles the mind, because it's like you know, when I watched uh, Ava DuVernay's Thirteenth, um, and you know, you learn about how the Thirteenth Amendment is like. So, slavery is abolished, and it's like you said, well, then they put other things in place to just make an excuse to enslave you. Like, you couldn't be a slave unless you was a prisoner. So, okay, well, here's how we can keep the slave. Oh, we just imprison them for stuff. And it's, you know, it's like you said, it's like once, you know, as soon as something changes, then they'll put something else in in place to, to... to to you know get over on that change and and it's all it's almost like it's like you you know it's almost like they had a goal line but they keep moving it like you know as soon as you cross the goal line or you get to the point where you get you you like hey i didn't achieve this part right and made this goal up oh, wait no this, let's move it back here so now it's even more out of reach and i think that's that's you know that's the thing that I, I just, I mean, I'm happy that 
I'm happy that they're having these hearings or that they had the hearing about reparations, but the skeptical mind or the, the cynical mind will sit there and think, is it even possible? Like, is it even a reality? Like, do you think that reparations for us is even a possibility? I'll tell you what. It seems it seems pretty far fetched to me. Mm-hmm. But I honestly thought that I would not live to see a black president, mm. and I planned on living a long time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think it was possible, and I, you know, was of course super happy when it did. But it just it just was not on my radar, and even in two thousand four when we spoke at the DNC. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't think that that was a possibility. So maybe it could, it could happen. Um, I don't think it'll happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the tanning of America is happening at lightning speed right now. That's true. So, um, you know, which is what is, which is, what is scary mm-hmm. for a lot of, uh, you know, people who have been in power. Yeah is that, you know, things are changing. Things are changing quickly, which is why they're trying to keep, um, you know, the Mexicans out. Mm-hmm. It's not that they are taking jobs, because they know they're not. Yeah. And fun fact, I'm in, I'm in Indiana at the moment. Mike Pence used to be the governor of Indiana. Mm-hmm. And before he became vice president, you know, this is the Midwest is former country. And he, being the loon that he is, <laughs> went really hard at trying to rid the state of illegal immigrants, which they were pretty successful at doing. But mm-hmm. what they found was the economy collapses without it, so they had to let them back. Exactly. I mean, it's that's the reality of you know we we get on a I, we can take a little tangent here, which is is fine because it's like when you look at how Trump is being successful and how he rev his base and his base is rooted in these, uh, you know, people who are prejudiced against others. It's the reality of it is, and, and, you know, we have talked about this in some previous episodes where the reality of it is, is that it's a fear of being replaced by a minority electorate. Like, like the reality of it is, is that old white men are shrinking in this country like the the power that they have is starting to slip away and right. it scares them to death like and so that's why they rally so much behind this demagogue who's like sitting there saying all these things and stoking their fear and, and perpetuating their hate and no he speaks that language yes he speaks that language if you if you if you think about your favorite toy that you ever got for christmas it's probably somewhere around seven, eight, nine years old. And you think back to that time, and you're just like, oh, man, that was a wonderful time in my life. And that's how they feel about the 50s. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when he came about, he was speaking that language. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a nostalgic time in America when the, all of the decisions were made by white men, nobody else. Women were second-class citizens. Black people were somewhere else, not even mm-hmm. second-class citizens. And... And the only people making decisions at the table, it was a country club. It was, it was white men. And 
accent is not like that. Uh, uh, there's a there's a pretty uh, poignant saying that I, I kind of go to a lot, and it's when you're used to privilege, inequality feels like oppression. Mmm, that's deep. And it's true. Yep. And it's true, and that's where we're at. They don't want to give up anything. You can't. Have, they feel marginalized because they can't have the whole cake now. Mm, yep. Like, oh, I have to give up a piece of it? This is BS. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I guess, like, even though, like I said, you know, you can feel a little pessimistic about the possibility of reparation, but I think the fact that they're even having the hearing, like, the fact that it's even in the conversation and the fact that, you're right, the electric, like, the electorate is changing and the country is changing and it's not these people that were in power are not gonna like they're not as in much in power as they were and you know that same uh woman uh the same reverend who was you know i quoted earlier i remember she was saying how she was actually very happy with the fact that they was even having these hearings because she didn't even think it was a possibility for that um and, you know, I guess it's like, I'm happy for that, but also at the same time, I feel like we can't get complacent. Like, we can't sit there, we have to keep holding them accountable for it. Like, we have to, like, that's why I always stress, like, midterm elections and off, pre- you know, off presidential elections years are just as important, if not more so, because these are the people that are actually making these laws or making, they have the ability to really put for serious legislation that can make a difference. And right. and so yeah, it's I, I'm I'm a little bit optimistic about it, especially since the fact that they're even having it. But yeah, the, but we have to hold them accountable. We have to keep it in the forefront and, and not let it go. And I think that's one of the things I like about because you know I'm friends with you on Facebook and I see that a lot of times you're sharing political stuff and sharing different things and sometimes there's stories that I didn't even know about and, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I try to try to keep my ear to the ground on, on what's going on. I I grew up pretty I don't want to say really militant, but mm-hmm. somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> I I really, really flirted with the idea of converting to Islam at twelve mm-hmm. as Malcolm X. So that's where my mind is at. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I just trying to even when I got out kind of hung in the streets a little bit, I still kept that, kept that, you know, little part of myself alive. Like, I was just always into, you know, politics and, and black issues and all those things. So I just try to stay in the know of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, what would you say, like, what would be your advice or what would you say to people, like, things that we can do to keep this in the forefront or keep it in, like, because, you know, I feel like in America we had we all suffer from a you know attention deficit uh, <laughs> disorder like you know we get distracted easily like I think that's one of the things that Trump thrives on like as soon as he does right. something then it's like oh well he does something else crazy and then it distracts us from the other stuff that he's doing like he's like oh look over here look over there because we don't keep it focused like what advice would you give that we can like keep keep it uh, in the forefront so it doesn't fall by the wayside. I think that the only way, the only way that we see any change in America 
as far as black people, is we have to bring about the socioeconomic change because one of the things that we have to do is get ourselves in large part out of poverty, out of living check to check, out of these, out of struggling. Um, so the way there are, it's almost like trying to find a way to jump into a double dutch. Mm-hmm. So many ways you can attack it, you don't know where to jump in. But I say for this next generation coming up, I think it's really, really important that we um, educate this generation. And when I say that, I, I mean from a bunch of different angles. Um, as much as we all are in the entrepreneurial vein, mm-hmm. we're going to need some people to go in and get educated enough to be part of the system mm-hmm. uh, because we have to be the spook who sat by the door and get in the system ourselves to change it. I feel like I was a part of the generation that did a very, very, very big injustice to ourselves because we made it so uncool and so unpopular to be police that nobody wanted to do it. So now we have officers who don't look at you as a human being, who should give you six warning shots in your back for no reason. So now... Whereas if we had good, upstanding black officers enough in there to actually change the culture, it's not about getting arrested. You can arrest me, but treat me like a person while you do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I feel like that was something that we did, that, that my generation did, like totally, totally turned around and, and snake bit us. Uh, so now I'm kind of that guy that is, um, anytime I see anybody who has a little inkling of the idea that they want to be an officer, I tell them, go do it. Mm-hmm. We need you. We need, we need people in there that are not, they're hiring, they're hiring these scared police, scared cops who, who their, most of their interactions with black people was through TV. Mm-hmm. So they believe what they see on TV. They come in here living their military dreams. They're treating the civilians like it's a war zone and they're acting in ways that you can't even act in a war zone. Nope. If, if, if the Army did the things that the police did, they would be, um, there would be war crimes. Yeah. That's one of the so, things that um, my brother Ricky pointed out to me when he went through, uh, you know, basic training, went through training. And he was like, he was telling us how when he went through training, like they're trained to, they don't fire their weapon unless they're in imminent danger so that was one of the things that drove him the most crazy in regards to when you see these unarmed black men being killed by police because they're like oh I'm fearful for my life when there are soldiers who are like like they're literally in war and yet they don't actually fire upon a person until they actually get fired upon and so go ahead Oh, I was going to say, in the in the, the fallacy of the I fear for my life thing is because you can be, you can think you're in danger and be in no danger. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between mm-hmm. thinking you're in trouble and, and actually being in it. And for instance, have you ever felt maybe something brush up against you and you think there's a bug on you? <laughs> yep. Or something? Yeah. For that one second, your heart drops. You're like, oh, nothing's there. Mm-hmm. 
that could have been maybe even a legit fear, a legit fear in your head, but it wasn't because there was no danger present. Mm-hmm. So you get to act erratically because you thought for a second that my phone was a gun. No, mm-hmm. that's that's not right. And and you, the the narrative is always just a hard job, and you know all of these things. Well, the hard job. You, from, you have to have you know, have to be held to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all. We don't. I don't. I don't. I don't want to go to a doctor that lost half of their patients and say, well, you know, yeah. it's pretty hard figuring out yeah. what's wrong with people. Yeah, and there's nothing it wrong because it is hard. Yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I say this, you know, I've had this discussion, you know, with my wife all the time. Like, we, we acknowledge how, you know, being a police officer is hard. Like, it's it's a tough job, and, yeah, you definitely, like, your life can be on the line. So I get it where you could be walking into a situation that you're not sure what's going to happen, and, and there is that possibility that your life is at risk. But at the same time, you like you said, you have to be held to a higher standard. Like, it's just like, you know, when they had the uh, government shutdown, and I remember uh, I was listening to NPR, and they was talking to air traffic controllers and um, who was not getting paid or they was, you know, on strike, and they were talking about how um, in our position, we have to be 100%. Like, because if, you know, if we are doing, like, uh, 50,000 flights in a day and we're at 99%, then, you know, out of 50,000 flights, that means if we just were 1% off, then, right. you know, five. that means 5,000 planes crashed. Like, that's unacceptable. So, it's, you know, it's... It's it, totally unacceptable. Yeah, so... You just can't brush that off like, oh, man, it's pretty hard making make sure all of these planes come in. You can't keep them all. Exactly. Like, no, you, you do. You're, you're, you're held to a higher... You want the respect of a person who is held to a higher standard mm-hmm. but in your actions you want to be treated like everybody else no it's, it's, that is not acceptable at all mm-hmm. not one bit mm-hmm. exactly yeah it's like you in certain positions you gotta be held to a higher standard and it's like it's like you said but you have people that's taking these positions that are affected by um stereotypes or, or you know stuff they see on tv and this you know perpetuating of a myth of, of how people are and you know just to tie it right. back tie it all back into reparations like this is all a part of what we're facing because even though like this all came from how we were brought into this country and how we weren't put on equal footing with the people who were here like it right. it's all part of this system that has been perpetuated exactly Exactly. And all of these things are part of part of it. And, and and another thing that I wanted to say about that before we if we are switching topics mm-hmm. that there is so many narratives that go along with the police shootings and things like that. But one that gets overlooked too, too I think that that I really um, think are just egregious. The first is that you have this so-called trained professional who is allowed to panic mm-hmm. and act erratically and a civilian with no training is supposed to be the calm person mm-hmm. with the gun in their face. Now, the average person has not had a gun in their face. Yeah. You know, so, I, you know, some people can handle it better than others, uh, but the average person just has not had that happen to them. 
So you mean to tell me that we're going to make excuses for the person that you feel is trained, deserves more respect, deserves all of these things, and they're allowed to just act on a whim mm-hmm. at, a, at, a, at a split second and then blame the person who didn't, didn't make the right decision in a, in a very, very stressful situation. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, 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 it's crazy. And then the other thing is that so many of these get caught on tape. And if I go into a bank right now and I rob a bank and they have me on tape, it's cut and dry. Exactly. The first thing, the first thing that the prosecutor is going to say is, ladies and gentlemen, it's all on tape. Mm-hmm. The moment the cop shoots a black person, it's, oh, well, we don't know what else happened. Yes. I don't need to know what else happened. I saw what you did. Because it doesn't matter what happened before that. It doesn't matter what I said. There's nothing that I should say that, yeah. you, able, that, that you should be able to kill me for. Yeah. It's, it, and that's the thing that drives me the most crazy, where it's like, not only is it where people immediately put up with the excuse of, oh, well, we we don't know what happened before that, or we don't know what else is going on. It's like, they don't even have to, well, that's for a jury to decide, or that's for, that's why you have a trial. But they don't even, we don't even get that. Like, they, they don't even have to, majority of the time, like, the shock isn't, Oh, they got off or whatever. The shock is if it even went to trial. Like, that's the shock. Like, if they even were brought up on charges. Uh Now, more Reparations 2003 with Chuck Taylor. If you're just joining us, black people got their reparations checks today. And in short, all hell is broken loose. In sports, the Philadelphia 76ers took on the New York Knicks. But since none of the black players showed up, Todd McCullough ended up playing one-on-one with Travis Knight. McCullough had 75 points, beating Knight by seven. After the game, McCullough said that he was hurt that none of the black players showed up, but upbeat because he, quote, finally feels like he has a big penis. Welcome to the club, buddy. The Big Penis Club. Fortune magazine released their annual list of the 100 wealthiest people today, and Bill Gates has been overtaken. By whom, you ask? A Harlem resident named simply Tron. Our Stephanie Gold is standing by with him now. So how did you become the world's wealthiest man, Tron? Hot hand in a dice game, baby girl. Six hours straight, talking about clackety, 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 clack. Now you're looking at the world's richest man, and I'm black. Kiss my black ass, America. Yeah. Oh, well, I think what everyone wants to know now is what are you going to do with all this money? Uh, uh, I'm going to reinvest my money into the community. Oh, that's a very nice gesture. What were you saying? <laughs> okay. Is that no, your son? No, no, I just bought this baby cash. Oh. No, straight up, though, I'm going to do the real thing and spend this money for y'all honkies. Change your minds. On that note, Chuck, we're going to send it back to you in the studio now. Hold up, Chuck. I got your girl. What do you say about a little lap dance for the world's richest man? Oh, well, if you put it that way, Chuck, back to you in the studio. Thank you, Stephanie. Another yeah. noob. Suck my n- <laughs> we, uh, we seem to have lost the feed. Anyhow, here with the weather is our old pal, reliable, friendly, portly, Big Al. Happy Reparations Day. Happy Juneteenth. <laughs> Just kidding. Chuck. I don't know if you know this, but I just handed in my resignation here at New Center three hours ago. And I'll tell you something else you probably didn't know. And that is this. This is not my real speaking voice. 
Actually, Chuck, this my real speaking voice. I talk like straight up gangster, bitch. My name ain't Big Al. It's out in Sims, okay? Uh, Big Al, seriously, what's the forecast for the tri-state area? Oh, I don't know, Chuck. Why don't we take a look at my tri-state area map, which looks a lot like my big fat ass. Okay, here we have Connecticut. All the white folks drive down 95 and go straight into the Highland Tunnel. Uh-oh, look out. Here comes a big brown truck. Wait a minute, that ain't no truck. Oh my God, Miguel, it's disgusting. I'm paid. I'm paid. I'm paid in shame. <laughs> Is that beatboxing? You old pasty bastard. Look at you, Chuck. You look sick, man. You look like you just walked up from ground zero. <laughs> this job sucks. Kiss the rings, bitch. And there you have it. Excuse me. Incredible. I'm receiving word that Colin Powell has just bitch-slapped Vice President Dick Cheney. White people, run for cover. We'll be right back. So, that was a very old sketch, a clip from an old sketch from Chappelle's show. And um, the premise of it was if they actually had paid reparations to black people, um, what it would look like, especially the, the amount that it would be. Um, that was actually done back in 2003. So this has been a discussion that we've had in the black community for a very long time. So the fact that it was in 2003 and it's now 2019 and we were having that hearing, um, you can understand the the reason why the, um, you know, one woman uh, who I quoted in my conversation with Saquon is feeling optimistic, you know, just the fact that they're even having this discussion in this day and age. Um, you know, the, the grinds of, the gears of progress move slowly. Um, but I want to thank Saquon um, for, you know, coming on and having this discussion with me. That was actually just the first part of our conversation. Um, like, you know, I spoke to him for almost an hour and uh, the, the tail end of it, we actually kind of got into some, a different subject as it, you know, steered away from reparations. And that's going to be included in an um, upcoming episode of the Zero to 100 podcast. So... It's very interesting, you know, the information that I was able to, to look up and find out about regards to reparations in general. Um, you know, one of the frustrating things and we, you know, me and Saquon kind of touched on it is that it only appears that black people in America are the only ones who actually haven't gotten any form of reparations and you know i could care less what freaking mitch mcconnell has to say like passing laws that um treat black people with civil civility like the civil rights act and the laws that came from that were very important but yeah that's not reparations <laughs> like that's not um the benefit you know this country was literally built on the backs of black people who were forcibly brought here. Um, you know, when me and my wife went to the 
uh, Smithsonian's African American uh, History Museum, it, which I highly recommend you go. It's a must visit. Um, there's so much in there. You know, me and my wife only went for a day and we really didn't even get to everything that we really wanted to see because there's so much in there. Um, one of the very, very interesting and um, super compelling um, exhibits in there is when you go through the uh, history of slavery. Um, they actually break it down from not just the, you know, human interest standpoint where it shows like the different stories that of people who were impacted by it, but they also break it down in terms of economics and when we were going through this one um section that was focused on cotton alone um they had broke down the value of cotton that was produced by enslaved African Americans in just one year in uh, 1861. So uh, the value of cotton produced by enslaved African Americans in 1861 in that one year was over $250 million. Also, the value assigned to enslaved African Americans in 1860 was over $3 billion. So that's the kind of money that you're talking about in regards to the slave industry. Like it's, it's, there's families in the South and families within this country that literally had their fortune built off of the backs of enslaved people. So it's, it's really insulting for Mitch McConnell to sit there and go, Oh, well, I wasn't alive during that time. And we don't know who would benefit from that. No, there's a lot of wealthy people within this country that benefited from it. And one of the things that was so um, crazy to me when I was researching it, because I was very curious, I was like, well, who else has actually received reparations? And, you know, Jewish people who went through the horror of the Holocaust have received reparations. The country of Israel has actually received $1.6 billion dollars. And reparations, not just from Germany, but from Great Britain, from the United States, from France. Like, we have actually paid reparations to the country, even though we weren't the ones that facilitated those atrocities. So, it, it's just... But no one questions that. No one gets upset and nobody goes, oh, how, how could we possibly... Do, you know, nobody <laughs> questions that. And this isn't about you know well they're wrong for getting that they definitely deserve to get it because they went through an atrocity but it's amazing to me that when it comes through the atrocities that black people face that it's a question about it where it's like oh well should they get it or should they not get it like it's that's the frustrating thing about it and that's the infuriating thing about it um one of the other very interesting things that i looked up because one of the things that I, I have to do, and especially that I, I you know, constantly do in this day and age where there is such a, a you know, prevalence of spreading false information at times. Like I saw on Facebook and Facebook is very good for this as much as I hate Donald Trump and I hate him, his terms and everything. 
you know, fake news is an actual real thing. And so when you see people post things on Facebook, you're, you you immediately, I always take it immediately with a grain of salt and I quickly research it because I'm like, is it accurate? Is it true? But one of the things I saw somebody posted was talking about how, um, you know, slave owners had actually received reparations for lost slaves once um, slavery was uh, abolished. And so I was like, oh, is that true? So when I was researching it, it actually is. It's not, it wasn't all of them, um, but it, it definitely was. Um, when Lincoln first was proposing the Emancipation Act, he, when he was, you know, before he signed the bill, he had put to the point where states that were actually loyal to the union so those are states up north would actually receive up to three hundred dollars for every enslaved person that they freed and part of it was to encourage them to free the slaves so it's like okay they wouldn't lose their money in regards to these people so they would you know get on board with emancipating them so it's you know as as much as it's a very great thing that slavery was abolished in this country and that Lincoln put it forth and that these states in the north got on board it's not like they did it out of some great noble act and they got something out of it and they had to give them incentive to do it now it's infuriating to me that to do the right thing you had to get incentive out of doing it but we know that's how a lot of things work at top in this country, especially. Um, so yes, they did receive some compensation, um, slave owners from the North. But the interesting thing was when I was reading this article, um, from the New York times written by, uh, Tara W. Hunter, who was a professor of American history and African American studies, um, for the 19th and 20th centuries. When I was reading her article, it wasn't just that reparation payments that she was looking into. It was actually the fact that if you go throughout the history of slavery in the world in general, a lot of other people or excuse me, uh, countries or owners that received slavery or that had slavery received some form of reparations once slaves went free. And, um, you know, she was pointing out how, um, in Haiti when there was the Haiti revolution and when they rebelled against uh, France do you know that Haiti actually had to pay reparations to the country of France for the slaves that freed themselves and I'm like that's insane to me like a lot of people will say that actually led to a lot of the the you know economic issues or the poor status that Haiti suffered for generations that still go on today because they had to pay so much to France in regards to the amount of, of compensation they got from the slaves that rebelled against them. So when you hear facts like that, you hear things of that nature that um, people that actually owned slaves got benefits from it even beyond once slavery was abolished that's what can be very very frustrating <laughs> that's just a polite way of saying it um you know this isn't about like i said before again this it's not about 
being angry at you know people um you know white people or all white people or anything like that it's it's not even about that it's just about the fact that this you know there was so much financial benefit to people who made a living off of subjugating another race to you know pretty much hell on earth and that you know a lot of the the turmoil that that exists within this country within uh, the black community in general can be traced back to this horrifying act that a lot of people just tell us to get over it you know and so there's like there's reason why you know people people who aren't black would like to stereotype you know stereotype black people as angry and uh, militant and stuff like that and you know that's not all black people but we have very good reason to be upset and to be angry. Um, you know, this past weekend, uh, in fact, this past Saturday, my wife and I were at Allegheny East uh, Conference Camp Meeting, which is a, a whole event where it's like all these churches come together and they have service, worship service and everything. Um, it's, it's so, it's really good. It's always enjoyable. But the sermon that me and my wife listened to, it was... Uh, the pastor that preached his name was Corey Johnson, and he, the, the title of his sermon was To Hell with Civility. And what he was talking about was when Jesus had healed a blind man named Bartimaeus, who had uh, met him outside the city of Jericho on the road, and he was calling out to him, and he was calling out to him, and he was trying to get his attention, and the people around him were telling him that, oh, be quiet. You know, you're making too much noise. You're doing too much. Be quiet. And, you know, it, it it's almost like how people, you know, when people get upset about injustice in this, you know, country and they, they tell us, oh, be quiet. And because he was equating it to this, um, you know, oh, you guys are being too loud. It's like, and there's a point where you have to be civil, and there's a point where you say to help with civility. Because this blind man who had this faith that if he could just talk to Jesus, he would be healed. It's it's the same thing here, where it's like, if you you know, for years they always look for us to to turn the other cheek or to forgive and to be peaceful and um and then there comes a point where you just have to say like 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 blind man to hell with civility i'm going to see jesus i'm gonna talk to him i'm gonna no i'm not gonna be quiet i'm not gonna pipe down and and that's the thing that i would hope that we all take into our lives and he was just applying it to to that in general like talking about how it's okay to be angry it's okay to not be civil like even jesus was angry but he sinned not but even jesus went into the temple and turned over tables when something was wrong so it's like sometimes you do have to be angry sometimes you have to turn over tables sometimes you have to let your voice be heard and um you know one of the things that i don't want people to 
to take as is that oh this is something that's never going to happen so we shouldn't even care about it no we should because the gears of progress like i said move very slowly and um we don't know what the future holds but if we stay silent in regards to if we don't let our frustrations or our anger be known then it's like they'll just keep going oh who cares like get over it and no we don't have to get over it so this was a very very deep subject matter is very very interesting um i really really again i appreciate saquon coming on and discussing it with me um what are your thoughts you know on this episode please let me know just uh email me at zero to 100 pod at gmail.com so that's the number zero to number 100 pod at gmail.com uh what is you got like what are your thoughts in regards to reparations do you think it's even possible um one of the things that i that i <laughs> found funny but i liked from the Chappelle show sketch was um when the character trying when they were saying oh what are you gonna do with the, all your money he turns around and says oh i'm gonna invest it back in our community and i'm gonna help um and then he yells psych like it's it's funny but it's also like a sad truth to it to me is that even if we ever did actually get reparations would we help our fellow man in our community and will we reinvest it and that's something that um is definitely probably going to come up in regards to the subject of a future episode that we're that i'm going to be doing in regards to black business and the support or non-support that we give it um because even if we actually did get reparations of some kind i would hope that we would use it not just for our benefit but to benefit those that are around us so that's just something to think about um so yeah i hope you guys enjoyed this episode i'm gonna um, close it out with not per se a political spotlight um because you know i said i was gonna do a political spotlight on cory booker and i am gonna highlight him uh but i kind of really just wanted to talk about the democratic uh nominees debates that (laughs) took place this past past week um wednesday night and thursday night so again i'm gonna say this that 20 like it was only 10 candidates like like there's a total of actually 25 candidates trying to get the democratic nomination but they only had 20 like it was you know 10 one night 10 the other night and it was a mix between those who were kind of have a legitimate shot within that like top five tier to those who are in the top 10 and lower um so (laughs) what i took from it 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 wasn't very compelling i will say like it it was interesting a lot of things they talked about was the most of the things that they talked about was immigration um gun control um the economy a little bit but it was pretty much centered around like foreign policies and trump and immigration really the majority of it um the thing is that i did take from it though was for one is there's definitely candidates that 
in my opinion i kind of don't see the purpose of you guys staying in it because the chances of you actually getting the nomination to me are very slim uh also it's really really far away still so it could very well change so even though i'm gonna sit here and say oh these people should drop out um it's really really long from now so we still have a lot of time um uh, 20 candidates again to me is just way way too many like it's a lot but let's just get into it here are the people that i would say really really to me need to drop out um marianne williamson look the majority of time where the points that she was making made very little sense um other like at one point she had made a statement that made my head almost explode where she was talking about how like the candidates were going through their different plans and the like they're for what they'll do within their first 100 days and actual policies and stuff like that they were given actual like you know concrete plans like they were putting forth what their their actual plan were and then she had made a statement she goes look trump didn't win from off of plans he won off of a slogan that said make america great again we need more than just plans and i'm sitting there like no we actually do need plans because we do want something of substance i don't want somebody that's just gonna come up with a catchy slogan like trump because yeah that, i don't really want that so I really was scratching my head as to why she was making that argument. And then it, in my mind, I was like, yeah, cross her off the list because that made zero sense. Um, I would cross off Andrew Yang because one of the things that I always say about Bernie Sanders is that a lot of his plans, they sound fantastic and they sound great. But then from a practical standpoint, how are you going to actually implement it? And so Andrew Yang his one plan or the one plan that he really highlighted is one that is so fantastical it's like dude you're nowhere in the world so his, his plan in general was universal uh income not universal health care but universal income and what that was is that he wanted to give adults um i believe oh man i'm i'm mad i'm blanking on the age group but i believe it was past the age of 18 or, or certain adults one thousand dollars a month no questions asked like you know tax-free one thousand dollars and when the when the moderator was saying you know that's his plan like and you know budget people worked it out they were saying that would cost like 3.6 trillion dollars to actually try to do that to actually pay people one thousand dollars a month like it would be 3.6 trillion dollars and he was just like yeah how are you gonna come up with that or how are you gonna pay that and then he was talking about the way he would do it is a certain type of tax and um like additional taxes and stuff like that and i'm like yeah that's never gonna happen it was 
extremely like if you thought universal health care was hard to get through like the you know, which isn't even universal health care but because the obamacare is not universal health care but if you thought obamacare was really hard to get through it's not even really realistic that um yeah so i was like yeah cross him off the list that's not gonna happen um <laughs> there was uh, the former mayor of new york bill de blasio he really, he tried to stand out. It was a lot of kind of talking over. I didn't think he did a great job. I don't think he has a legitimate shot. So I'm kind of like, yeah, cross him off the list in my opinion. Um, people that did stand out that I thought kind of made me look at him and go, hey, hmm, interesting. Um, I would say that... Uh, Julian Castro, who was one of the very earliest people to announce his running, who was a former cabinet member of the Obama administration, stood out. Uh, he had a really, um, especially in regards to immigration, and he did a lot of things in San Antonio as mayor. Um, he's definitely probably going to be somebody I'm going to do a future spotlight on, but he stood out. Um, he had a you know good exchange with Beto O'Rourke, who going into it uh, you know a lot of people seem to really like i don't know much about him other than that he was a representative from texas and almost beat Ted cruz but i didn't i haven't watched the documentary on him on hbo but um he didn't look that great to me i thought it was really weird when he kind of just broke out in spanish to go see look i know how to speak spanish it's almost kind of and then that brought everybody out to speak in spanish um so <laughs> It's like Cory Booker looked at him like, uh, okay, well, I can speak Swedish too. So <laughs> I thought that was a little weird. Um, I thought that uh, Kamala Harris actually did a good job. I don't care for her that much. And I still find it a little, you know, when she was pointing out Joe Biden's issue. And um, Joe Biden is, he's, 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 he's joe biden and he, like you know he's definitely like i said but when you've been in office as long as he has then you're gonna have some skeletons and you're gonna have some bad stuff come up and one of the bad things that came up was him was his um his opposition to uh like a busing you, you know not ending a segregated busing program so um but it's a little interesting to me for Kamala Harris to bring that up because then there's like, like I said, there's a lot of stuff in her background as an attorney general and prosecutor that doesn't look great. And so people were bringing that up. Um, try to think who else was it that, that I, w I looked at and was like, yeah, you probably don't have a great shot here, friend. Um, Eric Swalwell, who was really trying to get involved in the second debate but i was like yeah don't know who you are you really don't have a legitimate shot i would probably drop out if i were you because just didn't make any dents or impacts in my opinion um so yeah those were just <laughs> it was it wasn't really that eventful so you know we got a long way to go nobody's really standing out so uh, i will be doing a a political spotlight more focused on Cory Booker in the future but I just kind of wanted to talk about the my, my impressions from the, the two debates um, 
that's going to bring us to a close to the zero to 100 podcast episode 16 uh you can again listen to the podcast on um apple Podcasts, soundcloud spotify google play store pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts you can find it now and please subscribe 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 share 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 please uh, hit me up on um the email zero to 100 pod at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at wcw poet you can hit me up on facebook those who know me have my number hit me up call me text me um you know i am very open to feedback i love it and appreciate it greatly 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 uh future episodes are coming very soon and like i said um definitely have some things already saved in the can that are going to be presented in the uh, upcoming episodes so um i really really appreciate all the support that you guys give me and this is the zero to 100 podcast and i'm actually going to close this episode out with uh, the five minute opening from Tanahisi coates um when he opened up the reparations hearing because it was really deep it was very impactful i played a little snippet for you during my conversation with saquon but i really want you guys to listen to it uh you know his first the uh, opening of his statement because it's really really powerful and impactful and Thanks for listening. This is the Zero to 100 Podcast. We out. Yesterday, when asked about reparations, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell offered a familiar reply. America should not be held liable for something that happened 150 years ago, since none of us currently alive are responsible. This rebuttal proffers a strange theory of governance, that American accounts are somehow bound by the lifetime of its generations. But well into this century, the United States was still paying out pensions to the heirs of Civil War soldiers. We honor treaties that date back some 200 years, despite no one being alive who signed those treaties. Many of us would love to be taxed for the things we are solely and individually responsible for but we are American citizens and thus bound to a collective enterprise that extends beyond our individual and personal reach. It would seem ridiculous to dispute invocations of the founders or the greatest generation on the basis of a lack of membership in either group. We recognize our lineage as a generational trust, as inheritance, and the real dilemma posed by reparations is just that, a dilemma of inheritance. It is impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. As historian Ed Baptist has written, enslavement, quote, shaped every crucial aspect of the economy and politics of America, so that by 1836, more than 600 million, or almost half of the economic activity in the United States derived directly or indirectly from the cotton produced by the million-odd slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, $3 billion in $1860, more than all the other assets in the country combined. The method of cultivating this asset was neither gentle cajoling nor persuasion, but torture, rape, and child trafficking. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. 
When it ended, this country could have extended its hallowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder, from enslavement. But the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs, coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored state terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the majority leader. What they know, what this committee must know, is that while emancipation dead bolted the door against the bandits of America, Jim Crow wedged the windows wide open. And that is the thing about Senator McConnell's something. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism, to say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, that if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings, that if D-Day matters, so does Black Wall Street, that if Valley Forge matters, so does Fort Pillow, because the question really is not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. Thank you.